Well, again, it's a great honor and joy to be with you this evening. And uh, again, to look to a psalm that speaks of God's grace and love, not only for us, but for the next generation, not only for our own, but for all flesh and all nations. And so this evening, I want to read Psalm 145. You can turn there in your Bible, Psalm 145. A song of praise, a psalm of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, beginnings and endings matter greatly, don't they? Beginnings and endings matter greatly. And here we see something of where this psalm begins and to where it leads and ends. In verse one, we see a pledge, a pledge made by a individual person. I will extol you, my God and King. I will bless your name forever and ever. But that's not where the psalm ends. The psalm ends with a very different claim. The person is matched by the public. And so we read in verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. 
As with Psalm 45, which we considered this morning, so here with Psalm 145, something that begins with a statement about a single person, by the end has developed into something that reaches to all times and generations and has expanded from one person, one house, one people and tribe to all nations and all flesh. We see the expansive movement of God's goodness as his promise, his love, and his salvation reaches beyond the place where it has as yet imprinted itself in human reality. It moves bit by bit, ripple by ripple, from here to there, from near to far. It begins small and it ends so significantly wide, globally wide. And I want to ask, how is it that we move from here to there, from beginning to end? Because we dare not presume that all beginnings conclude well. For instance, perhaps you have begun a race at some point. Perhaps you signed up for a 5K or you remember back to some traumatic moment in school in a PE class and you began a race and you may have been cruising along well for a season and then you made a turn or you took another lap or you reached another kilometer and suddenly you felt the pull or the cramp. Suddenly your lugs didn't seem to be working quite as they were and you didn't finish. What started as so promising, what began with such uh, potential, it didn't live up to expectations. You wound up limping. Consider the joy and delight we have at different times, whether it's for our household or our business. We identify the, the component part we need, and we look up the various suppliers, and we place our order and then not long thereafter, Jeff Bezos writes you or your supplier reaches out to you and tells you, it's in the mail, it's on the ship, it'll arrive soon. But we all also know how supply chains break down, don't we? We know when we hear that for whatever reason, the container ship is still out at sea or your item has been out for delivery for four days. We wanted you to know. We're aware that something that can seem so vital, so significant, so necessary, and so effective can also be something that doesn't actually arrive as intended and expected and needed. Supply chains like races can break down and end poorly. Many of us go about trying to beautify our homes. We're coming to the spring. It's not here yet, I hate to tell you, but it's coming soon. It will warm up a bit. The sun will stay out longer. And many of us will go to our, our local store to buy plants and vines and trees and we'll, we'll put them in our yards or our gardens. And that which looks so promising in the garden store and that which looks so fitting when you dig it and you place it right there in your yard or your garden will two months later so often suffer what you and I both know can happen. A few weeks of drought and it withers up. A season of oppressive sunshine and it just can't stand the heat. 
or a deluge of rain and too much flooding water and it's overrun. It's absorbed far too much and it's unhealthy and it simply won't last. A plant, a tree, a bush that looks so beautiful can turn out to be so overrun and ugly that it's got to go. Whether it's the race, whether it's the supply chain, whether it's the vine or the plant, we know that beginnings don't guarantee ends. And we're right to ask then, what hope do we have? What hope does the church have? What hope does this mission have? That what is pledged by the one might really reach all flesh. That what is celebrated in one generation will actually echo through eternity and be the praise of all generations. Why do we have confidence here? How can we stand with a sense of peace, with a sense of hope, and how can we set the sails for the future instead of withering and wallowing in anxiety and fear because they seem mighty rational when we consider so many other things that falter and fail and fall short. I think Psalm 145 doesn't simply give us a beginning and an end, but it gives us several words to speak to one another, to our neighbors, to the watching world, words that help us see that which carries us all the way through the Christian life. We don't need something else. We don't need some other superhuman strength. We need what the word of God itself offers us. My favorite line from the 16th century, the time of the Protestant Reformation, is a, a much forgotten line from an easily overlooked confession. It's the second of the Reformed confessions from a, a small city, Bern, in 1528. And the first statement goes like this. It says, the holy Christian church, whose only head is Christ, is born of the word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. It's a reminder that even now, as we are so far down the journey, two millennia past the ascension of our Lord, even now we still depend and abide on his word just as much as when those disciples were walking around Galilee with him or sitting at his feet on the mount. Even now, we as a church, you as a congregation, depend on that word just as much as those early days when this church was a mission, a prayer, a meager beginning. Even now, each of us, however many years or decades we are into our Christian journey, depends and abides on God's word just as much as when we were a fresh convert being called from darkness to light. But we do have to listen, and we do have to watch, and we do have to receive all of God's word if it's to sustain us as individuals us as a congregation, us as God's kingdom from our beginning to our intended end. So three things here in this psalm to show us how we're to be carried to the end. First we see this psalm beckons us to speak of God's works, to speak of God's works. And I want to suggest that's no small thing because particularly as we face trouble and pain, our attention span narrows. If you've ever been in a season of deep physical pain, perhaps you've been like me in the hospital for a season, undergoing 
an especially excruciating bout of pain of one sort or another, one reality is the fact that when, when you have a true ache, when you have a real abiding pain, it is really hard to think about other things. And when you find yourself in a hospital room, it is, it's rather difficult to have your mind elsewhere. Everything is designed and your body signals nothing but an alert to pay attention to that which is frustrating you, that which is inconveniencing you, that which is paining you. And that's emblematic of so much in life. When we suffer and struggle, when we hit difficulties of all sorts, physical, relational, spiritual, and material, in all those circumstances, it is so easy for our attention span to narrow and for us to forget all else that has occurred and all else that is going on. And so it's no small thing that God's people are called to speak of God's works to one another. We see this repeatedly in this psalm. If you look at verses 5, 6, 10, 12, 13, and 17, you'll see references to deeds and works and doings and acts. And I'll draw your attention to but one verse representative of a slew of them. Verse 4 says, one generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. This speaks of the significance of us not merely noting and observing what God has done, but of professing what God has done, not merely professing it to those who are there, but to passing it on to those who were not there. And we see this intuitive response again and again in the Bible. Think of the Exodus when Moses and the Israelites are brought miraculously out from Pharaoh's rule. And then when Pharaoh's chariots pursue them, the, the waters are opened up so that they can pass through and the waters are brought back so that their oppressors are killed just behind them. And there on the other side of the sea, Moses sings of God's deliverance. And that song at the sea is one that's recorded for us because it was passed on generation by generation so that those who themselves had never lived in Egypt those who themselves had never seen Pharaoh's chariots come after them, those who themselves had never followed a pillar or a cloud through the desert so that they could know what God had done to deliver his people, so that in their own difficulties, they could be reminded of the power and the resolve of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Or we can consider a generation later at the end of Deuteronomy as the people are about to be taken across yet another body of water, the Jordan River, to possess the promised land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land God has promised for years, hundreds of years to this people. And they know there are sizable foes across that water, and they know there's a real task ahead. And not surprisingly, they might hesitate. And so God not only recounts the history of who he's been for them in Deuteronomy 1 to 4, and he not only recites the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, and he not only goes on to expand on what they're to do and how they're to live in the land to come in Deuteronomy 6 to 26, but there at the end of that, they're taught that they are to recite one to the other, my father was a wandering Aramean, 
and they are to pass on to the next generation and that generation to another, remembering the way God provided for them when they sojourned in the desert, when they didn't yet possess anything, much less storehouses full of grain and cities built with walls. They were warned, of course, earlier in Deuteronomy that you need to beware when you enter the land lest you forget, lest you presume. You need to remember when you get there and you face foes, the mighty deeds, the great acts I've performed. And so it's no surprise here, friends, that God tells us the significance of speaking God's works to the next generation. And we can think, of course, not only of biblical acts, but of later instances. I wasn't yet born when the great flood of 1979 hit Jackson and the Pearl River flowed where it wasn't supposed to flow. But I do know stories passed down from my family, stories of how extended family cared for one another, stories of how coworkers brought boats and helped rescue things, stories of how a local congregation, Trinity, cared for one another in situations of great loss and dire pain. And I wasn't there just as much as the Israelites living in the promised land weren't wandering Aramaeans. But I benefit from hearing the way in which God pulls through and God cares for his own in the face of dire and difficult circumstances. And I face dire and difficult circumstances and you will too. And we are buoyed and lifted up. We are encouraged and comforted. We are reminded there's a bigger world when our pain and difficulty is so prone to make our attention span so small and myopic. There's a second thing we see here though. Not only does the psalm teach us the significance of speaking of God's works, but also speaking of God, full stop, just God. Who God is, who God reveals himself to be, who God is in all his beauty and goodness. Just as pain can narrow our attention span and make it hard for us to imagine that we might make it beyond the present challenge, so goodness and success, comfort and ease can make it hard for us to imagine that there's anything more to be had. We can so easily be numbed by the simplicity of a good day, by the way in which things aren't always falling apart right before our eyes. And we can so easily fall into presumption, assuming that it will always be thus. Perhaps, like me, you've experienced this with not a little pain and some shame and embarrassment. This last summer I was on the beach and my eldest son is at just that age where when he offers to compete in an athletic contest, it's one of the last years where I need to say yes because soon it's not wise for me to say yes anymore. And so my 13-year-old son asks, Dad, let's race to the water. And we're very far back on the beach, and it's a very deep beach. And so there's a lot of sand, and then it drops off, and there's a tidal pool that looks a little daunting and fun. And then you got to climb back up onto the beach, and then there's a long, further expanse before finally you reach where the waves hit the shore. And he starts to provoke me and to taunt perhaps with encouragement and support and so I stand up and we're off and I remember racing and we're 
we're approaching the descent into the tidal pool and I'm thinking I'm in my 40s and this is going pretty well. And I make it down the descent and into the tidal pool and I'm marching along through and we're, we're even and this God is going great. I can identify with the chariots of fire line. I feel the pleasure of the Lord when I'm running like this and still upright and winning. And then I make it up the ascent onto level ground on the last bit of beach and I'm ahead of the sun. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. I'm so glad I took him up on this. And I begin thinking of of how am I going to graciously respond when I hit that water and I offer comfort and kindness and model a way in which to take a victory in a Christian manner. And it's just at that point that, of course, I'm not watching the ground in front of me and I don't notice that there's a dip in the sand and that when I put my right leg down, it's not going to meet even ground next to where my left leg has been. And of course, I'm running at full tilt sprint. And so when my right leg doesn't reach sand and my left leg is still going, I of course do a 720 to the side. And amazingly, my son who's there jumps over me and keeps running. And when he turns around and models a gracious way to win and comes back and says nothing but, are you all right, dad? He observes that I've got blood gushing down my leg. Every injury I've ever experienced in my multiple decades has been reactivated. And it'll be a weekend of lots of Tylenol and much embarrassment. Something began so well and it was going so very, so very promising. And it became so easy to presume that it would end as it was. And that's not the most serious of things when you take an L competing in a foot race. It's a serious thing when you consider the journey of life. When you presume that a good season will perpetually last. When you coast believing that a life of no major screw-ups thus far twill ever be thus. When you simply assume that because you're okay now, you will forever be okay. We can enjoy the goodness now and forget that there is greater things ahead to be had. And I'm struck, this passage quotes from an earlier text. As we look at verses five through seven, it it points our mind back to an earlier passage in that Exodus story. Quotes from it in verse eight. And there we we hear the story of Moses and the Israelites in that wilderness on their journey. And we're reminded of what occurs in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is the tail end of the episode of the golden calf. And so Moses has sung the song at the sea. And a few chapters later, they've passed through more desert. And they've reached Mount Sinai where... God was always going to take them. The goal was always to let my people go that they might serve me at my mountain. And so in Exodus 19, they're there. And God beckons them up to meet. And they say, Moses, you go in our place. And so he does. And you've seen the movie. He receives the two tablets. And they are down below awaiting his return. And God is taking his time. And 40 days and nights pass. And they grow impatient. And they compel Aaron to take all the treasures of Egypt that they brought with them and to fashion this golden calf that in worshiping it, God might move things along. God might be provoked to a little sense of urgency. And what we learn is that God instead is angered by their 
presumption, by their impatience, by their attempt to manipulate him. And God threatens to leave them be and to take Moses and begin starting from scratch with him and him alone. And Moses prays and intercedes. He says, Lord, don't leave them. Don't just take me. Continue on with them and be faithful to them. And the Lord says, I will, but I won't go with them. I'll let them live, but I'll leave them be. And Moses intercedes again. And Moses says, Lord, your name is upon them. Don't Don't send them forth, don't send us forth, identifying with them, but that you too go with us. And the Lord says, I'll go with you. And Moses, at this point, you can see the the wheels spinning in his head, as it were, as you read on in Exodus 33. He has just had two prayer requests. Both have been granted by God Almighty. He's doing pretty well, and you can see he takes the dice again, and he's ready to roll. And what does he ask after he's saved a nation and he's asked and received God's promised presence to go and to bless them? What would you ask? There's lots of things we could think of. Riches, authority, health, reputation, family, heritage. So many things one might ask when one's on a roll. And Moses prays that God would show him his glory. It would be so easy to presume that because things were good, things were as they should be. Because he was experiencing God's goodness and kindness, he had enough. But Moses knew there was more to be had. He was not distracted by the good gifts of God from asking for the still further glory of God. And we see here, we see that this psalm reminds us not merely to speak of what God does and the good gifts he grants, but to see more importantly through that the goodness of God's character, the beauty of God's person. We see here it says in verses five through seven, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I'll meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall Pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. We're reminded here of the significance, not only of speaking God's words, lest pain and difficulty cause us to forget that God can pull through in a pinch. We're called here to speak of God's glory and goodness, his character and attributes, lest we be too easily satisfied and distracted by the many good gifts that God gives to his children. But there's a still further thing we're taught here in this psalm. Thirdly, we see in particular a word about God's steadfastness, his steadfast love. If you look at verse eight, we see it says, the Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Here it quotes from that passage in Exodus 34. When Moses wants to know more of God, this is what God gives. God says, you can't see my face. You, a sinner, cannot take that in. But if you go up tomorrow and stand around the edge of the rock, my glory will pass before and you can see my backside is literally the description. And so Moses goes up and you see the cloud and the pyrotechnics and the noise and the smoke and the thunder And the Lord passes by, and what we hear is 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And what we see is the naming of what has been displayed thus far in that Exodus story. In difficult times when it seemed there were insurmountable challenges, God was gracious and God brought triumph over Egypt, the greatest order of the day, and Pharaoh, the mightiest ruler of them all. And God brought deliverance at the sea when they were faced with the largest army that they might possibly stand against. And then there at the foot of the mountain when they themselves turned traitorous and presumptive, when they sought to manipulate and to disrespect God Almighty, God proved merciful, eager to forgive their sin, not only to provide for their needs. But when Moses prayed, when Moses prayed, God not only displayed being slow to anger, being patient in working out his wrath, but he demonstrated steadfast love, a commitment to remain, to be there in the pinch and to be there in the situation of privilege, to be enough when they are overwhelmed by the impossible challenge, but to be there also when they're so easily distracted by the many glitzy things and wonderful provisions being offered. God's steadfast love is a reminder that God is enough on the journey as at the inception or beginning of the journey. We see here that yes, vines can wither. They can be overwhelmed by an oppressive sun. They can be undernourished by a drought. And yet in John 15, five, we're told Jesus is the true vine and that all those who abide in him, they, they grow and flourish to fullness of life and joy and happiness. We know that supply chains can break down and we learn from the apostle Paul in Philippians 1, that great promise of verse six, that this God who is your God, the God of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he will supply all your needs and he will complete the good work that he's begun in you. He doesn't depend on others who might fall short. He doesn't have a chain of subcontractors or suppliers who might fail to get him what he needs. He is a God who supplies all needs and promises to see the job through to the end. And we know what it is to start a race and to falter and not finish. And Hebrews, Hebrews 11 and 12 tells us of men and women of old who've run, and they've run well, but they've not yet seen the completion, the fruit of their running because they wait for that which we experience now. And it reminds us that their race was not futile and ours will not fail because there is one who is not only author but also perfecter. There is a Jesus who runs ahead and beckons us to now run the race set before us, looking ever only to him. And so as we think about the mission of the church, as we think about the expansion of the gospel, as we think about the happiness, not only of ourselves and our household, or of this congregation in this moment in time, but of that being passed on through the generations, and that being extended to all flesh and all the nations, we can look backward 
and we can see how God's love has been steadfast. And amazingly, in the face of insurmountable difficulties, resurrection has been worked time and again because that's God's signature move. But we can look backward also and see in the face of amazingly good gifts, God's people have not been distracted and they've continued to long to know God and God above all else. And like Moses, they've not been satisfied with good things or with glitzy gifts, but they've wanted nothing short of his glory. And it's only because God has resurrected the weak and God has given and satisfied with his glory that you and I are here. And so we can likewise look ahead and we can look ahead to a future, a future we can't name, a future we can't describe but in broad strokes, but a future that is no less a part of God's covenant faithfulness. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever because God is a God of steadfast love, because God is a God who is shown to be faithful and true to abide with us and to beckon us to abide with him. As the saints of old said, the holy Christian church whose only head is Christ is born of the word of God, abides in the same, and doesn't listen to the voice of a stranger. We can often pay attention to the news. There's enough scandal and enough sin in every city and every church for us to wonder, to grow cynical, and sometimes to despair. But here we have enough gospel, enough promise, enough hope that God is with us and God will remain with us. That he shows that not only in baptizing us and beginning our journey with his powerful grace, but in giving us a table that we can return time and again to, to remember that he has nourishment enough for the remainder of the journey. That he's no less present as we go about our pilgrimage as he was when we were powerfully converted from death to life. So let's pray as a church asking that God would instill in us not only a a deep dependence on him for our happiness, but a profound hope for the happiness of the nations and of those generations yet to come. And let's go then, strengthened by the God who hears those prayers, speaking of his works, speaking of who he is, and speaking of his steadfastness. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, God, you have been our God in ages past. You are our hope for years to come. Write in our hearts your faithfulness. Remind us of your many great works. Instill in us a love for you and you alone above all else. And give us deep confidence and peace in your steadfastness that we might give you all praise, all glory, all laud, and all honor for you are the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And this we pray in Jesus' strong and holy name. Amen.